Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that I also run a Patreon page, where I've posted interviews, articles and videos all about conductors and the art of conducting. You can now pay for that content annually, and if you choose to do so, you get a 10% discount over your year of subscription. Just click on the link in the show notes attached to this episode, and it will take you straight to my Patreon page. Today, I conduct a conversation with the first Danish conductor to appear on a mic on the podium. Over a very distinguished career, he's held title positions in Denmark, Sweden, Italy and the United States, and since 2016... He's been the Chief Conductor of the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. It's a great pleasure to welcome Thomas Dousgaard. Thomas, lovely to see you, to speak to you and to be with you today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. And I have to say, before I pressed record, Thomas showed me the view out of his window, which you could see the sea and the countryside, and it's just gorgeous. And I'm not jealous at all, honest. <laughs> it's, it looks like a lovely place to spend time. <laughs> and, and I said to Thomas, I, I don't know how you get any work done living in, with a view like that. I'm wondering too what I did, uh, how I had time for, for conducting before Corona hit in. <laughs> well, indeed. Um, with with everybody, I always do my homework, Thomas, and I've looked online, I've looked on the the uh, reliable page of Wikipedia, he said, uh, through Gritted Teeth, but also your biographies and your agent's website. I can find no reference to what your earliest musical experiences were, what instruments you learned and whether you came from a musical family. How did music first enter your life? Yeah, I think I can say that I came from a, I come from a musical family. Um, my grandmother was a pianist. And she was, uh, uh, she studied at the um, conservatory in Copenhagen, where I would later study. And uh, one of her teachers was uh, Carl Nielsen. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and she went on to study, very interestingly, in in uh, in Vienna with Edward Steuermann. And Steuermann was in the circle of Schoenberg. Yeah. And he premiered as a pianist, Pierre Rodlinea. Wow. Um, I'm not sure if my grandmother was into that kind of repertoire at the time. She no. loved uh, Chopin uh, beyond everything <laughs> and uh, and Schumann. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what I have left from that was uh, that I often played for her uh, when I started playing the piano. And she was extremely critical. And she would mm. show me the uh, scores, uh, the piano music uh, she had played with Steuermann. And he clearly was um, a hot temper. Yeah because he had a very soft pencil. And with that, he sort of crisscrossed the pages where he didn't think things were okay. <laughs> <laughs> it looked very dramatic. And um, uh, I think it was a huge boost for my grandmother to, uh, to be in those, in those circles and yeah. to study with such a capacity as, as him. And uh, I, I'm sure that was a strong part of her musical foundation as well as the background with Nielsen. Yeah. Wow. Um, so when I when I came to study piano, it was with a, a, a student friend of hers who also was in the class of Nielsen, and um, she was my teacher for the first many years. But I should say, um, I didn't really want piano lessons. I wanted to play guitar because I wanted to play in a rock band, <laughs> and um, the um, I thought actually I played the piano because since from the time I could sit upright in a chair. I, I sat next to my father, and my father was uh, a jazz pianist, not by profession, but by 
love. Yeah. And um, he had had a band in his youth. Um, and very luckily for him, um, a member of the band called him around his 60th birthday and said, um, hey, are you still playing the piano? Why don't we get together again? And the band reformed. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> at at a sort of second stage in his life. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, I had been playing with him all along, improvising on the top end of the piano. So I really thought, uh, is there any, anything else to learn? Mm. And um, in my ignorance, that is to say. <laughs> so uh, my parents agreed that I would have guitar lessons and uh, piano lessons. Now, the guitar lessons wasn't a big success because I had expected to um, to prepare myself for playing in a band. And instead, I got somebody who was into finger playing. Oh, with long fingernails uh, and uh, Spanish style. Well, it didn't get that far <laughs> because I didn't stay with him long enough to get to that. But what I did was when I started there at the beginning of the school year in in August was Christmas songs. That was really the last, absolutely last thing I wanted to do. Yeah. So I'm afraid after Christmas, I, I left this otherwise really, really nice teacher um, and went on to self-study uh, the, the, uh, playing the guitar. And later mm. I did eventually uh, join a band uh, when I was, I think, 10 or 12 or something like that. And we did have a short, uh, glorious career. We were in Danish television. Oh, wow. And um, we played at parties, uh, um, not just for children, uh, and uh, had, had much fun. Um, but um, it was around that time that classical music also hit in very strongly with me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had listened to a lot of different kinds of music when I was a child. Um, I was, my first concert was a jazz concert I went to with Teddy Wilson on the piano and Ben Webster on the saxophone. And it was really, uh, that was my second musical home. That was yeah. jazz music because of my father and all the records I knew. Um, and I loved music from, uh, uh, I remember recording with uh, uh, music from the Indians in the Andes Mountains, uh, music from uh, Soweto in South Africa, uh. Uh, somebody called Lemmy Special, who played the uh, penny whistle and had made recordings since he was 12. Uh, there was Miriam Makeba, another a glorious singer from uh, performer from South Africa. Th this was my circle of 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 interest. But around the time there, when when I played in the rock band, Beethoven somehow hit in, and uh -huh. that became my huge love in classical music. Yeah, and that um, made me leave the rock band and um, uh, begin playing the cello, so I could play in an orchestra and experience from inside what 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 that was like wonderful i mean i similar experiences here you know i had a phase around 10 to 13 where i was very much into pop music and what was current at the time but then i was a violinist and somebody i think my parents bought me a recording of the Brahms violin concerto and it completely skewed me away from pop music yeah. and and the more of course the more you learned the more i played you know learning cesar franc violin sonatas and things like that that was it then i was down the classical road and and yeah you know, I've really barely looked at or listened to pop music ever since, frankly. Yeah, it has also been very difficult for me. I think now I'm I'm in this year where I'm, I'm not really conducting. No. Um, 
uh, I have been revisiting these uh, records from my childhood. And that has simply yeah. been wonderful because I can feel yeah, the joy bubbling in me exactly as it did at the time. And that yeah. is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, the... the um, the Beethoven was was the piano music. It was the Pathetic Sonata. Mm. It was the uh, the third piano concerto, which completely blew me over. And um, I would listen to these yeah. every day. And and uh, finally find somebody who who could play me live the Pathetic Sonata. And I could just witness what it took to how it was physically possible to bring out mm. all these things of 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 one instrument. Um, and I think the uh, uh, the composition um, was also a huge inspiration for me. I I thought I I wanted to do everything. I didn't see a clear path ahead of me there. Yeah. I I I I was so in love with all these things um, that it was not until my um, piano teacher suggested, "Why don't you go to a orchestral rehearsal? You've been now to concerts and to uh, recitals and orchestral concerts, but wouldn't it be fun for you to see how they really?" work yeah. and how they prepare for the concerts. I thought, yeah, that would be amazing. I can't believe how, how can people actually talk about the music and imagine how does a soloist and conductor, you mentioned Brahms von yeah. Concerto, how, how do they actually get on? Yeah. And, and with the orchestra, how is, how is this all communicated? Do they use words? Do they just show it or what, what happens? So uh, luckily her sister played in the Danish radio symphony. And uh, through her, I got arranged with the uh, uh, artistic office there that I could come in and listen to a rehearsal. And the first one was with uh, Chile Bidache. Oh, wow. And I was told I was told that I need, would need to be there half an hour before. And if I moved the slightest during the rehearsal, I would be thrown out immediately. Because this man <laughs> was very temperamental. And you, you, nobody wanted to upset him the slightest. They were already running a huge risk by yeah. admitting me into the hall. Yeah. So I sat like a frozen uh, something in the corner <laughs> and watched, watched proceedings and um, was uh, completely taken by what, what was going on. That it was actually possible for the orchestra to go from sounding like this to sounding completely, completely differently. Yeah. It took yeah. a while. Yeah. And he, he, he didn't give in. No. And there was much screaming and <laughs> tantrums going on. It would not but have worked today. <laughs> lots of lots lots of things with Chili Badaki took a lot of time, didn't they? <laughs> I mean, you know, it, yeah. Not only performances, but you know, I I've watched him in rehearsals and uh and Chili Badaki would stop for a long time and really just talk. Um Absolutely. Which a lot of orchestral musicians, you know, don't like, especially in the UK. They'd rather be playing than being lectured or talked Absolutely. at. Absolutely. What an amazing baptism of fire to go to the first ever orchestra. <laughs> yeah. It was Celli Badaki. Wow. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> so you played the cello, and, and, and I'm assuming playing in the playing cello in orchestras, that also got you fired up because you were seeing people who weren't Celli Badaki rehearsing you. Um, when did conducting first into your, enter your head as something you might be interested in doing? Uh, that came through different strands. Yeah. Uh, by by being at the radio house uh, every week or every other week uh, after school, or actually I got free from school Wednesday afternoons to 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 go there. Yeah. Um, I, I I subconsciously got into it, and then I would watch on television. There was one day, and that was unforgettable. Uh, Brahms' first symphony 
uh, with Bernstein and the Israel Philharmonic. Uh, uh. And I felt so inspired by this. I felt that the music was like beyond what could be written on a page. Yes. It was taken into a different realm and it was just happening in the moment. Yeah, yeah. Like they were writing it as they went along. Mm. It was for me pure magic. Yeah. And uh, I think that was a game changer for me as it was for my for me to actually begin to perform my own music. And yes. the first time I conducted was performing my own work at, at high school. Um, and uh, I had no idea really what I was doing, uh, but I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> <laughs> we, share, we share something in common, Thomas. So the first thing I ever conducted was a piece I wrote for brass. Um, All right. Yeah, absolutely. And I would have been 16, 17. Uh, and yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure I had no idea what I was doing either. Um, and I remember regretting ever writing something in 7-4 slowly and, and then having to work out how to conduct it. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I mean, that that was, I think that's often, you know, with many conductors, and if we go way back, you know, conduct, composers often or almost always conducted their own music before conductors actually existed. It is a relatively recent thing to, to yeah. divide up the professions. Mm. Um I mean, uh, in you say Beethoven, and he played the piano, the viola, and probably a few more things, mm. um, as well as naturally conducting them and uh, and 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 composing. Mm. So I think I came from that idea too. That yeah. it's um, my my energy flows in 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 music, and it it has different expressions simply. When did you start having lessons, formal lessons, or or is that? I remember asking that question of somebody, and they said, "Oh, I've never had a lesson in my life." But I know that you've had lessons because <laughs> you, you studied later on at the Royal College with Norman Delmar, so I know that you had lessons. But did you have lessons uh, in at the Royal Academy of Music in Copenhagen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think they were very important to me, and mm. I was incredibly privileged that my teacher. I, I saw him almost every day. Mm. Uh, he he took out time to 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 spend time with me, mm. and that was a fantastic boost for me. At the same time, I went to the rehearsals at the radio and with the other orchestras in Copenhagen, mm. and just absorbed as much as I could. Um, so it was never just one source where everything came from. Um, it was always through many different musical aspects, and I think also it meant a lot to me that. Um, and my cello teacher offered that he would be the soloist if I could get a band together. Mm. <laughs> and he was the principal cello of the Copenhagen Philharmonic and um, a, a, a wonderful, unusual musician. And his lessons had inspired me very much. And our collaboration there, where I was actually conducting while mm. with him playing, was mind-blowing for me. And it led to a, a deeper... Um, collaboration where he would play for me things he he was to perform mm. uh, so suddenly we were we were in a on a different dynamic than we had started out and that yes that somehow was um, very very inspiring for me that I actually realized that I had something somehow to give and so what brought you to the Royal College of Music and uh, Norman Del Mar a name that's appeared on this podcast 
on at least two occasions of people who were taught by him, but then others uh, who, you know, in some way or other um, were touched by his musicality and by his teaching. Yeah, I think for me, coming from my culture here, I felt that the figure of Nielsen, though a composer, not you know, he also conducted, but the figure of him as a as a musical figure in in my country, was uh, somehow too imposing. Mm. It filtered into so many parts of musical life, and I suddenly had the feeling that there was a certain provinciality about it. Mm. Um, I'm now back, so you. It's not that it. I. I'm. I'm against it as such, but I felt as a young musician, I could not uh, go much further in, uh, yeah. in 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 that weather. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. I understand. And as um, some years earlier, I had uh, when I went to, I think when I was fourteen or so, my grandparents, my grandmother who had studied in Vienna with Steuermann. Uh, uh, took me to London for a week to go to concerts. And yeah. every night we had a choice between yeah. outstanding artists performing. And every night we would experience something completely out of measure from what I knew in Copenhagen, except for the yeah. solo recitals I had heard with Gilles or Kempf or Arau or something like that. Um, and I fell in love with the, with the music life in, in London. There was no doubt mm. that if I was going to study somewhere, I was going to be in a place where there was such a richness and every musician seemed to, to pass through. Mm. Mm. So um, that made it obvious for me. At the same time, I, was, I became conductor of an amateur chorus in the last years at, my, at the conservatory in Copenhagen. And the previous conductor who had sort of passed this chorus on to me went to London to study. Mm. So that helped me further in in uh, asking him about where he 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 how he was doing and where he lived and how he managed with foundation support and all kinds of things and he was a very generous man and he came to me mean a lot to me mm. uh, even to this day because it wasn't a given that as a, a colleague slash competitor or whatever you call it when you're students together <laughs> you would be so generous with mm. your with your information uh, particularly because he went a pretty unique way there to go to to london and um he would always say the world is big there's room enough for all of us yeah and that is something really important for me to always uh, carry with me um and uh, he found a pianist who could accompany me. I, I played the Schumann Piano Concerto for the entrance examination, first at the Royal College. And since I got in there with Norman Delmar, I, I cancelled my application for the Royal Academy, which <laughs> just by coincidence was a bit later. Yeah. yeah. And I had a actually wild experience uh, at the entrance examination in typical Norman style, as I would find found out. <laughs> I was uh, conducting a piece by Tibbet, and I would say... This is in. I do this in two, and he would scream, "No, it's in four. <laughs> and I would, I would then go go on to conduct uh, Brahms' first piano concerto, and I would say, which I wouldn't anymore, yeah. say in six, and he would scream, "No, in two, but as if in six. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, um, I had only been asked to prepare the first movement, 
and coming from from here, I had no score except for the photocopy I had made from the score at the conservatory library. Yeah. I had only copied the first movement because that was what we had been asked. But then he fired third movement, and of course I knew it. I loved yeah. this concerto beyond anything. Yeah. But I had not really studied it. And I didn't really know up and down. So by the first scale of the piano going down into the orchestra, I was totally, totally out. And the orchestra broke down in fits of laughter. I did too, Mm. but most of all, Norman did. And it took him quite a while to recover from that. And we were all (laughs) sort of just um, uh, out out of our minds that it was somehow so, so funny. Uh, that it could go so wrong, yet nobody was really prepared uh, uh, for for the situation. And it led to that since the director of the Royal College had watched this episode, Norman was called to his office and strongly rebuffed for for um, for his behaviour <laughs> because <laughs> because what what about the 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 renommee of the organisation yeah. if if things are just thrown at at uh, at applicants, and then they are laughed at afterwards. I mean, what what world is that? Huh. Now it was really all quite wonderful, and um, and uh, he was uh, very jovial and uh, very kind to me afterwards, and uh, talked about that he was himself in Aarhus at the time, the Danish mm. second biggest city, with the symphony orchestra there, and uh, suggested I come and uh, watch some rehearsals there, and somehow he indicated that he very much wanted me to join his class. Mm. But, um, well, it gave me a glimpse of what I came to learn later, his uh, uh, fantastic humor. Mm. <laughs> it could be at others' expense, but it was from a warm heart also. And it was uh, music making from a warm heart as well. Yeah. And, um, again, I, I don't think I can stress enough that it was such a different culture coming from here. Because mm. in the UK, you are blessed, you surely too, with... The, a great system, mm, mm. and in that great system, system is incorporated sight reading. Yes, well, that's a big thing. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. that is a big thing. Yeah, that means that with a student orchestra, you can do a Mahler symphony. I mean, that would be yeah. completely out of reach, except for after weeks and weeks of rehearsals in uh, at at the uh, at the academy at the time in Copenhagen. Yeah, yeah. So for us as students to be able to put on things which were so difficult was mind-blowing yeah it was like being on another planet simply and he had such a he had such an encyclopedic knowledge of of music didn't he um I mean, incidentally, uh, the podcast listeners will know this, but I was taught by his son, Jonathan. And again, much humour. Yes. Um, a lovely man, uh, but again, an encyclopedic knowledge of things and, and also a know-how of how to fix orchestral problems. Um, he was a wonderful trainer of the symphony orchestra in, at the Conservatory in Birmingham, but but he would tell you, you know, this is the problem here, this is the problem there, you know, you're going to encounter these problems. He just knew it. And whether that always came from his father or he was just a, similarly blessed in that regard, I don't know. Yeah, Jonathan is fantastic. He has been such an inspiration for me too. Yeah. Um, uh, endless discussions about his editions of course. has been super, super inspiring. And they could not come out of him if he also didn't have this very unusual mind yeah, uh, being yeah. able to dissect the things in 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 a very rational and clear-sighted way that's right um 
And I think what I love now when, when Norman is not here anymore is still to, to read his wonderful books on, uh, on uh, you know, I often read in the books about Strauss and his humor just shines through in such a uh. miraculous way. I can hear his voice as he would grade it through uh, a beautiful story. And uh, I think he, he had a very unusual talent mm. for also, also writing and, and really bringing himself into the language of, of, of written text. You said earlier about your musical upbringing, how it came from so many different angles, you know, from world music, South African music, uh, jazz, uh, classical music, rock bands. If you, if I look at your conducting teachers, you know, you were taught um, in Denmark before you came to London, then by Norman Damar. You also had master classes with Franco Ferrara, Leonard Bernstein, Hiroyuki Owaki, who I know nothing about. Um, but, you know, just looking at the, those four names alone, that's four completely, well, I don't know about Awaki, uh, but the others, different conducting styles. Were you, much like your upbringing, taking things from each situation, adding it to you and thinking, I can use this or I'm going to discard that? Or how, what was your approach when you go to the different teachers and different masterclasses? I think I'm, I, I have a certain curiosity. And uh, for me... It wasn't so clear what I would take from one or from the other, but it felt like such a big, vast ocean yeah. to be dealing with music. It can go in so many different ways. And I think I I wanted to know as much about it and to understand as many approaches to it, but that, that's after rationalization in a way. I was yeah. simply curious. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I felt when I went to these masterclasses, um, after I had finished my official studies, I felt nowhere finished. Mm. Um, and and uh, of course you are not. I mean, as you will know, it's uh, it's an endless journey. And I guess I, I somehow sensed that at that time, yeah. <laughs> that I, I uh, there was not one direction which could give me the full truth. Yeah. And I it maybe also helped me not to settle on glorifying one particular direction yes i think yeah. i it 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 came from a culture where it was obvious that i had to find my own mm. and um i couldn't just do something in awe of somebody else's interpretation i it was it was obvious for me that i i i really had to it, I, it was natural for me i would say to yeah. to find my own way and for this i I collected inspiration right, left and centre. Yeah. And I, I, I still do. I think it's one of the most often said things by the guests on this podcast is be yourself. What's not often said is that you've got to find yourself to be yourself. You know, you've got to find your own path. You've got to find your own way of beating, your own way of rehearsing, your own way of speaking. Um to be true to you, to actually then be true to yourself and for then musicians to respect you and look up and say, well, he's not trying to be somebody else, he's just him, you know, and then then you can have a discussion as to whether you like each other or not, but, you know, that, which we, we all have those moments during a year, but that's an interesting thing is that, you know, you to take all of these strands and people ask me, where who am I influenced by? 
the answer is I'm influenced by the fact that I've played for 20 to 25 different conductors every year for 25 years, uh, and you know, or 22 years or whatever it was. That's going to influence me. That's going to, you know, uh, good and bad. I mean, that's that's how it is. But you know, the, all of those influences end up with you being able to be yourself, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, absolutely. And by by being exposed to so much different, um, I think frees you up as well. Yeah. I uh, there was never somebody you could also say who took me under his or her wing, yeah. uh, and that uh, you could I I might have enjoyed if it had happened, but it freed me up totally because yeah. the uh, I was not um, asked to be loyal in a, musically loyal to anybody. Uh, mm. I I felt a strong need simply to be myself and in a way also to. Um, at the same time, yeah, distance myself from all these influences. Yes, I think yeah. the, the the big challenge when I when I then actually came to work as a conductor after uh, at the end of my studies, uh, I felt I needed to throw out all the things I had in my ears, all the things I had heard up to then. Yeah, of of all the interpretations and and performances I had heard of a certain piece, and start completely afresh, just sitting with the music. Mm. And and there you mentioned Jonathan Delmar. There I think he helped me because, um, for example, when I came to perform and record the Beethoven symphonies with the Swedish Chamber Orchestra, I so much needed to look at scores fresh and with no editor or Besser Visser mm. uh, who had who had uh, filled it with with their assumptions. Yes, to really just get to the source and let myself be inspired totally by that and see what happened. I think that that helped me totally being who I am, searching for really what was in the ears of the composer mm. and not how other interpreters were looking at it. And weren't they a revelation when those Baron Reiter scores of Jonathan's came out? Um, I remember playing from them for the first time. I think Simon Rattle used the, I think the first one was number nine, possibly, and we played the, using these new parts. And I was just getting into conducting, thinking, oh, this is a game changer, you know, to not use the old yeah. parts with, with everything was just a staccato dot. Um, everything had been sort of uh, watered down. Um, the Boeings had been, you know, edited over over the years. And, and to suddenly get this, it, it actually made it sound different. And then when you know, I started, my, my wife bought, bought me the pocket version of all of the nine symphonies and you you flick through and you think, well, this, it really is a game changer. Um, of course, not all composers Absolutely. need that, but Beethoven definitely did. And what I like so much is that it leaves so many things open-ended. Yes, yes. It, it doesn't uh, solve, it doesn't give us the solutions. It, yeah. It presents us all the questions, yeah. and um, and I think that is uh, what helps us also when coming back to it um, mm. and doing it again. Yeah, yeah. That it talks, speaks to us freshly. Yes. Uh, without those layers of either tradition or, or indeed editions who have who have uh, sought to repair on 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 something, it really yeah. presents it in the, the bare truth and i think yeah. we when we played it to begin with the the editions hadn't come out so he would fax through at that time the fax was the uh, the quickest uh, yes. communication he would fax through all his observations all the things which 
he had asked to be put into the print and we would transcribe that into the pages. I mean, it was an incredibly laborious task yeah, at I the bet, time. I bet. Uh, which, uh, and I also asked him to come and talk to the orchestra and talk about his thoughts on this and w how it came about. And yeah. so that everybody really owned this process. Yeah, yeah. That was really important for me. Um, that we all tried to search and, and think about the left open questions there. Yeah. Well, we're going to come on to score study later on, because every conductor, I ask a question about score preparation and study. But you mentioned the Swedish Chamber Orchestra, an orchestra you were principal conductor of for I know, 22 years, um, which must have been your first love, really. Um, and then you go on to Danish National Symphony Orchestra, uh, uh, you're honorary conductor of the Orchestra della Toscana, uh, Seattle Symphony Orchestra music director of, and also BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. Now, two of those orchestras, um, the Danish National Symphony Orchestra and Seattle, you started as principal guest and then immediately became music director or, or, or principal conductor, which is a sort of a, it's a different way of getting that job because more often than not the the big job comes up there's a search committee they go through they think well we've got our principal guest you know we need to find a new face or a new, new name but twice now you've you've sort of uh, gone in by stealth uh, the slow burn appeared as principal guest and then got the the big job do you think that's a better way of getting that job um because you've already got formed a relationship and then you know, it's it's much more like a, a slow romance rather than speed dating, um, which is what often a music director search can be. It's it's a speed dating system. Well, it has uh, every everything is possible. I don't think there's a, a particular way which is better because every organization, every orchestra is indeed has its own dynamic. They're different. And yeah. um, uh, I think with this, with this, say with the Swedish orchestra, I had been there once. And there was already, uh, I sensed a huge excitement. Yeah. And as soon as I had been there second time, uh, I was offered if I would yeah. go there. Now, with the Danish radio, I had performed with them and played with them for many, many years because, before I became principal guest. Yeah. I had done tours and recordings and whatnot yeah. uh, with them at that, at that stage. And I was very happy to be become principal guest. Yeah. Um, and... I think it meant that we knew each other very well, mm. of course, when I began. And I knew the organization very well. And I could quite immediately move things in a particular direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, rather than going into it and seeing where things went. But again, when I talk of it like this, I, I think back of the Swedish Temple Orchestra and we I moved things immediately as well. We started recording Beethoven symphonies after a few months. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, I think there's nothing uh, particular to be to be extracted from it. In fact, I don't think I had thought about that that <laughs> it had happened several times in in my life that it had come yeah. from the principal conductor position, uh, uh, guest conductor position. Um, I think in Seattle it also brings. Uh, uh, a knowledge to to the musician since I'm not living there. I, after all, I lived yeah. in the same city as the Danish Radio Orchestra. Uh, it it helps me. I know the musicians much better yeah. uh, than if I had just been uh, visiting a few times in advance. Uh, that gives me a huge uh, advance since it is not my back garden. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think 
if we want to achieve something deep and meaningful, yes, it can be done by some magic or the spur of the moment. Yeah. But I admittedly like something which has a deeper, longer understanding. Yeah. yeah. I think that has a that is somehow in my in my veins, probably through being for so long with one particular orchestra and also through my experience with the with the Danish orchestra, yeah. Danish radio, knowing them for such a such a long time. So I think it's somehow grown into me yeah. that the yeah. um this uh, this growth is important to me. Yeah. That that it's organic. Of course you're right in the fact that, you know, I was in Birmingham when a certain Andres Nelsons walked in the door and within three days we'd all given him the job. You know, that was the ultimate speed date. It was almost love at first sight. He walked in and we were, oh, it's Andres. And that was, that was what happened. But of course, you know, there are other instances, as you've just said, when the long, slow burn uh, really, really, really works. My next two questions are sort of linked and they're also linked to what we've just talked about in the fact that, you know, you have commitments each year to five orchestras. Um, the ones I've just listed, you're either conductor laureate or your music director or your chief conductor, which means that uh, on many occasions during the year, you go back to those five orchestras, which means how much time do you have for guest conducting other orchestras? Do you prefer to go to ones that you've been to before many times? Or are you still very happy to stand in front of a new orchestra you've never met before and go through that childishly nervous, uh, even, maybe you, you don't feel it anymore, I still do, of standing in front of an orchestra for the first time? How, how, how do you try, I mean, you know, forget COVID, how do you try and look at each year of, of, <laughs> of, planning, of planning your, you know, your, your diary in that regard? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important thing to, to reflect on. And I, I think I try... Um, every season to meet some new orchestras yeah. and I try also to continue a relationship where, with the orchestras where we where we like each other mm. so um, it is a fine balance I think I can say for sure here after this break of COVID I will work less mm. I will take I will take more time in between I don't want the hassle of arriving jet lagged uh, many times in a season, if yeah. at all, I want to come down in gear, uh, as I've experienced it now, uh, much more often, mm. and feel that sort of flow of inspiration I get from the uh, from the waves of the ocean, the uh, the uh, singing of the birds, and the the yeah. quietness, because orchestras often live in big cities yes and we are in in places far away from where it all begins in silence yeah and i i feel i would like to experience that uh, more in the in the coming in the coming years so i will um i, I will clearly be doing less yeah and therefore it will be uh, even more the thinking about um where to where to revisit and and where to go, go and you. Yeah, it's exciting to go in a new place too. I, yes. I, I, I enjoy that very much too. Um, <laughs> part two of this question is, again, I read Wikipedia, I read your biographies on various websites, and I cannot find any mention of opera, which means that 
have you ever conducted much opera at all? And in the future, would opera be something you'd wish to do? Uh, almost all of the names of the people you've guested with or I've had jobs with, well, all, all of the names I've found, uh, symphony orchestras. Uh, has opera ever really been a part of your career? Actually, when I was young, I did a fair amount of opera. Um, yeah. But it was never the, the focus of what I did. Right. Uh, it was uh, always uh, close to home because I had uh, three children yeah. and therefore I would not be away for a long production mm. as that would involve um, simply what? too much time, yeah, time six, away. Six to eight weeks of being away, yeah. And I would never be more away than two or maximum three weeks. So I would do productions uh, at the two Danish companies, the uh, Royal Opera, Hmm. and the Jotland Opera, which was a touring company. And uh, I enjoyed that very much. I loved the, the excitement of, yeah. the, of the stage, uh, the, the whole theatre of, the, of the, the stage involving so much more than music, lighting, dance, uh, hmm. scenography, the, the, the whole acting on, on, on stage. And then on top of that, to have an orchestra and chorus. Hmm. I mean, what more can you ask for? Yeah. Uh, and bringing to life some essential masterpieces uh, th that was sublimely inspiring for me. At the same time, I experienced, I think, often um, at the Royal Opera House uh, that the orchestra would change quite a lot from performance to performance <laughs> <laughs> in, in personnel. Yes. <laughs> and, and I guess that... <clears throat> reflecting on that afterwards, I felt, I guess that's that's not exactly what I... Ideally, what I would like to spend my time doing. Yeah. I love the concentrated, um, intense work with the music over a few days and then concerts. Yeah. Yeah. Then it can be many concerts. It can be touring. It can be recording of it and and so on. But this this com compact uh, time, yeah, where where we stay together. It's the same musicians through and through. That that's a kind of particular kind of uh, uh, intense bomb going off yeah. in 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 concerts, and I just didn't always have that sense with the opera. Yeah. As soon as you change so essential people in the orchestra as, a, as the concert master or <laughs> principal wind players, it, it, it I mean where are we then? Yeah. So um, at at that time it became clear to me that my my priority would not would not be in that and i i simply just found myself thriving more in the in the compact symphonic uh, symphonic world so in my next life with a different temperament i would <laughs> I, I will i will maybe attempt opera more <laughs> Uh, true to this podcast, it's an open, honest answer uh, and a wonderful answer. And the reasons you give are you know, absolutely so important. You know, the, the idea of turning up for a fifth or sixth performance and, and half your woodwind section and the concertmaster is different from the night before would drive me insane. It would drive any conductor insane. One final question before we do the 10 questions. And it's a question I've asked pretty much every conductor, Thomas, and I'm intrigued to know whether you're in uh, one camp or the other. When you come to learn a new score, do you have, or it could be revisit an old one, do you have a system? Do you sit down at the piano or do you just sit at your desk and use your inner ear? And more importantly, for the conducting geeks and students who listen to the podcast, are you a scribbler in your scores with pencils and colours? 
or do you write nothing at all like some other people I've spoken to very recently? How do you do it? How do you go about it? Yeah, I think that my answer to both questions is that it is a process where there is no firm uh, truth yeah. or, or system for mm. a, any of them. Um, if it is pieces I have, I know very well, I, I've, I've done before, I will just sit with them and dive in. Maybe there is a, uh, maybe the composer has recorded it, yes, him or herself, yeah. and I, 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 and maybe a, a, a discovery of of this recording has come out since I did it last, and I would like to hear that. And maybe a new book has come out yeah. about about the composer, um, who can throw, which can throw light on it, um, but. I want to do like with the Beethoven score. I want to feel it as fresh as possible. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I would prefer to have a score without any of my previous markings so that I'm free from what happened before. Um, and depending on what I feel I need, I will mark it, I'll mark it up. I will often like to send the librarian um, a marked score with my intentions as much as they can be carried out into the parts yeah, yeah. as that will always be a huge help and uh, the backside of that is of course that it fixes me to some decisions which I might hmm. in the months between that time and the performance might change in my yeah. mind so I'm very careful not to um, box myself yes. in by by decisions on everything but keep some qu questions open as it isn't there must that everything is mentioned in the in the markings, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and then I it's a question of timing. It's a question of how well do I know it and relating that to how late do I pick it up? Yes, of course. Way, yeah. Or how regularly do I how often do I revisit it more and more intensely towards the time of the performance? Because I want to get back to the stage the state of mind as a as as me hearing it for the first time many of the pieces i would perform today i i would have heard as a teenager or as a child where where at least for me music uh, made a huge impression hmm. huge huge kind of life-changing impression to hear for the first time beethoven's seventh symphony yeah yeah um and when i perform it i want to be back in my shoes at the time hmm. and feel that exaltation this huge joy flowing through my body yeah. from experiencing this music and that is what i would like i would love the listeners to feel when they hear it and i want to feel it myself to find my my own boy inside <laughs> uh, and that is a careful juggling of of time that i if i begin too early and um get too comfortable with it too too quickly i might also find too comfortable solutions for, yes. and and expressions i want it to be fresh in me so it is a strange race <laughs> uh, <laughs> inside um how much to prepare and how so it really depends on every single piece individually how i would approach it and and i guess that is that also helps me keep it fresh there is no rule i won't necessarily bring out all my pencils for every piece <laughs> some pieces i enjoy the freedom of not putting a single single marking in and 
other ones I will need if I learn something for the first time. Yeah. Well, I'll bring out some colors and uh, and uh, I will need to um remind myself through through putting things in in markings so that I don't feel I start from scratch every time I look at it. Yeah. It's a fascinating glimpse into what we have to do as conductors and you you know you mentioned the fact that often in the old days and I'm sure it'll come back you you know that you're going to conduct a symphony in 14 months time and therefore you need to put it on a slow burn process and let it simmer and bubble and whatever else but you might also get a stand-in you might be wrong on a Friday by your management and say can you get to somewhere on a Monday and you've got a weekend to learn a, you know an overture you never conducted or even a concerto you never conducted and then you know you turn the gas up quick and you the, the learning process is a lot faster and, and that's exactly what it's like and and it's even it's the same as the rehearsal process you don't want a performance to be too too ready too soon because otherwise it can be stale by the time you get there especially if you're going to perform it three or four times in a week um but yeah fascinating absolutely fascinating and i and i was nodding away because uh you know it's exactly how i feel a lot of the time you know, <laughs> you know pieces you know you're going to be doing in nine twelve months time well then i visit it you know occasionally and think oh, i'll just have a look at that bit but not too much too soon and but yeah it's it is fascinating so brilliant answer if you are fascinated by how a score is marked up, I've written an article on the subject, showing my own method and explaining how I go about the process of marking and learning a score. You can see this article, as well as other articles, bonus mini-episodes, interviews and videos, by subscribing from just £5 a month to my Patreon page. If you decide to pay annually, you can even get a 10% discount over the year and join the discussion all about conductors and conducting at a discounted rate. This is quite a saving if you choose to pay for the highest rate, which includes conducting lessons from myself as part of the package. The details are in the show notes attached to this episode, and it would be great to have more of you subscribing to this ever-growing supporters club. Now, back to my chat with Thomas Dowsgaard and the all-important 10 questions. Thomas, it's the bit that no conductor can escape. It's the 10 questions. Everybody's answered the same 10 questions, so I start with... What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? The sounds I love are the waves rolling in and out of the sea. Yeah. I live next to the sea and it is a joy to listen to the different sounds every day. There is yeah. not two days alike. The way it rolls in, the way sometimes it has enough power to also roll stones out. Mm. Uh, uh, before the next wave, uh, the way when you begin to really listen to it, that it has high pitches, it has low pitches, it has something in between. It is a huge variety. Mm. And there's the waves right, in, the wave right in front of you, but there's also the one on the left and the right side of you. There is polyphony. There mm. is, uh, there's a lot going on. <laughs> and it, <There> is, <laughs> it is, it is, it is a sound I love since. Uh, my childhood. Yeah. I love to be near the water. I love when I'm away from it. I love the song of the blackbird. Yeah. I'm super fascinated by this simple looking bird producing improvisations like we can only dream of. Mm. Mm. I think Beethoven would have been, em been envious. Yeah. It is like flowing out of an endless source. And uh, I think that's a, 
wonderful image for myself when trying to make music. And, and after such a poetic answer, what about a sound you don't like <laughs> or in, even detest? Yeah, I dislike the uh, the garden machines, uh. particularly when somebody else used them. <laughs> uh, and I I dislike the uh, the noises of a building site enormously. Mm. I dislike the machine sounds, I guess. And if that is brought into the home in form of a coffee machine, I detest it. <laughs> I don't like coffee to begin with, so I don't see the reason for it. But uh, <laughs> so I can appreciate others' delight in the in the taste. I find um, I find the noises of this of these machines really really disturbing. And uh, in a day, I need to wake up slowly with my ears waking up slowly too. So. Uh, um, a day without these kinds of sounds at the beginning is a good day. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I would spend it with my partner, with my sons, and I would spend it in a place where I could find silence, mm. where I could feel this tickling in my body that um, every sound is exciting coming from the silence and I want to feel alive to I wanted to be in surroundings where I could feel alive uh, realizing everything and you mm. so um, yeah that is in nature that is where I feel there's some something divine at play yeah something bigger than myself and uh, I need to uh, recharge in these places and I would always seek seek that out if I had even less than 24 hours. <laughs> well, having seen the picture out of your, or the view outside of your window and heard your last three answers, I now know exactly why you live where you live. <laughs> That's, um, <laughs> um, yeah, I'd, uh, if, if, if only uh, in podcast land, I could show people the picture I saw, but you know, there we go. You'll have to trust it from me, dear listener. It's a wonderful view. Um, going on, number four, who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? I mentioned that I had been uh, in London for a week with my grandparents when I was a teenager yeah. and had been overwhelmed by going to concerts. And there was one particular concert which stood out. And I felt the concert hall, Royal Festival Hall, mm. turned into some kind of cathedral. Which is it, difficult for that it, hall. <laughs> That's a, it's rather that dry doesn't hall. happen very easily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it became a, a spiritual place. Yeah. And the conductor was, of course, Giulini, mm. the Italian Carlo Maria Giulini. And uh, I was lucky later on to hear many concerts when I was a student in London uh, with him and many rehearsals to meet him a few times briefly and somehow feel part of his divine spark. Mm. I thought he was in a different realm somehow. And... Uh, I sensed in his performance a touch of something much, much bigger than ourselves, and he was a medium for that. Mm. Uh, he wasn't just an extremely musical guy. He was in contact with something something divine. Well, he's, he's a name who's barely, if at all, ever come up as the answer to that question, and I've wondered why. I've got a few recordings of his on my collection behind me. 
uh, one in particular of Bruckner's Eighth Symphony, which I cherish and always go back to because, like like you said, it's as if he's taking us to a different place. But I'm so surprised he's not come up before. I'm so glad he has now. Thank you, Thomas. That's a wonderful <laughs> answer. <laughs> a conductor whose name has barely appeared. Now, question five is, oh. a, is, a, is a, a question which um, some people find cruel, some people don't mind answering at all, and occasionally some people have actually refrained from answering, which I've found most peculiar. And that question is, who would be a favourite current conductor or conductors? Yeah, you know, when you sent these questions uh, some days ago, that was a question mark in my head too. Um, and I feel that I don't have have enough insight today. I don't follow enough of uh, of the uh, conductors today. And those I knew from going to rehearsals in, in Copenhagen and those I studied with, they have long passed away. Mm, long uh, gone, yeah. Long gone. And um, yet there are some of those, uh, I could say, still alive, which uh, I admire enormously. Mm. And to name just a few, I thought I would mention three. Yes. When I was a child and went to rehearsals at the Danish radio, the chief conductor was Herbert Blomstedt. Mm. So I was kind of used to him from from an early age. He was called Lector Blomme. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, I admire him for his integrity and the sense I have always of honesty in his music making. Uh, I've I found it. I find it very powerful, and mm. it has a human aspect which um, glows in me when I experience him. I uh, would then mention uh, the um, music director of the Boston Symphony when I was when I was uh, assistant conductor there, Seiji Osawa, mm. and I admire him for his kind of energy of a different culture. Yes. Which is somehow so sparkling mm. when it brought into this, to, to, to what we call Western, Western uh, classical music. Of course, there's a wonderful Japanese classical music too, um, which I've later discovered, which I didn't hear him do much. Um, but the kind of wild energy which, he ex which exuded from him mm was a huge inspiration for me too. And then thirdly, I would mention a conductor who I've also admired for a very long time, uh, Yuri Timiakhanov. Mm. He was a principal guest conductor with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra when I studied. And I guess the of the many sides of this sublimely musical man, there is a magic side to his music making. He is, for me, a magician. Mm. And in that way has always, as long as I've known him, been a, a, a huge inspiration for me. Mm. So these three different, very different um, approaches, um, I think, if I should mention the, the most important ones, the, they would be the ones. Well, brilliant answers again. And... You know, Herbert Blomstedt, how does he do it? He's still, and, and he is literally going strong at 93 or 94 years old. He's still going strong. Uh, Azawa, again, I agree with everything you said. There is an energy to him and the, how he conducts, but also the music making. 
Um, and Temekarnov, I've never played for him, but the you know you when you join an orchestra in your early twenties, like I did, you hear stories of people who'd come, who people who'd been frightened by you know Yasha Horenstein going right back, uh, and Temekarnov. So many people spoke fondly of the the times he came to Birmingham. The fact that he couldn't speak a mm. word of English, but everything Absolutely. came from his hands and his technique, and he could just yeah. make an orchestra play with by saying nothing, you know. And and those were there yeah, stories from days of uh, days of old. But and it makes you wish that you played for these people. So brilliant choices. <laughs> what is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Okay, there's no doubt for me that. Um... Several of the hardest pieces I've ever done have been by the Danish composer by uh, Pierre Norgård. Mm. Pierre Norgård. And um, I think among them, there is one which tops the list, and it was actually dedicated to me. Right. Uh, it is an uh, orchestral work called Terrain Vague. Vague Terrains. Right. And as with all Norgård's music, it was rhythmically very, very complex. Mm. On top of that, there were voices... Uh, which or parts which would one part would accelerate while another one would be uh, uh, slowing down yeah and across that field there would be parts which would in turn have to be played very rhythmically or as the title indicated very vaguely rhythmical <laughs> so you were faced with a score where really the answers were not there until you were with the orchestra. Yeah, yeah. And there, the confusion about when it was to be played exact and not almost became irrelevant because it was so hard to play the rhythms anyway. They were so, <laughs> so hard to to digest and read that just to get them right was difficult enough. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> it was a wonderful experience and yeah. we spent a lot of time trying to get it right and it even exists on a recording now um but i think that was the uh, that uh, I, I think maybe a few gray hairs come from <laughs> come from that i i wouldn't have been without it but it was uh, for sure challenging well, I'm laughing, and, and dear listeners, I'm not laughing out of cruelty, I'm laughing because as Thomas explained that piece, you know, I'm laughing because I'm thinking, oh my God, this is getting worse and worse and worse. And it, it, the problem with aleatorical music, more often than not, is just your your role becomes a little bit like a traffic cop. You're signalling when events need to happen or when an events need to stop. But because it's some of them are chance, you know, every each time, you know, your listening skills are. I mean, yeah, I was laughing, uh, and I was with you. I was, I was laughing with you. Uh, <laughs> it's, it sounds incredibly difficult. <laughs> yeah. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Of all the things I am not allowed to mention here, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that is one thing I always wish I would have brought. Mm -hmm. And that is a pair of binoculars to look oh, a bit yeah. further. Yeah, yeah. But I'm afraid the times I've brought binoculars on my journeys can be counted on one hand. Yeah. And uh, as I'm always actually trying not to be caught in making rituals for myself, that is nothing. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm always packing. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I tend to avoid becoming dependent on something in case I would one day forget it. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, people have given that answer. But actually, 
binoculars, especially if you're, you know, you're going somewhere and you know you, you might be able to go for a walk and see wonderful views of mountains or whatever, it's a good answer. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? In paradise, I would not decide on what I would uh, rehearse or perform or play until much shorter before. Mm. I would not decide how long the rehearsal would be, how mm. long the concert would be in advance. I would uh, not plan my life in a tight schedule. Yeah. I would um, uh, be open to what happened. I'm often thinking of uh, Schwarzschlaf Richter when he came to Copenhagen to receive a prize in, I think it was 1993. He played Diabelli Variations and it was a very moving performance and a, we would say a big success. So yeah. he was asked afterwards, uh, Mr. Richter, would you, would you consider coming back to Copenhagen and perform here? He had not been to Copenhagen, if at all, for, for decades. Yeah, yeah. I, I had certainly never heard him here before. And he said, um, yeah, I would love to. Well, well, maybe then in two, three seasons, he was asked, he said, uh, no, no, maybe in two, three weeks. Hmm. <laughs> and um, said, uh, they, people thought they had misunderstood what, what he said, because yeah. surely he wouldn't be free in two, three weeks. He was surely had a busy, busy travel schedule. Uh, but no, uh, he liked to go where, where he liked to be. And he, in his later life, uh, tried to avoid planning and he... Uh, brought his piano wherever wherever he uh, liked to go. So yes, he returned three weeks later and played a completely different program. Mm. Uh, and it was it was a major event for, for a decade, those two concerts. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I admired at that time that it was possible. And with all our planning, uh, I have enjoyed here in this uh, corona year to... Um, think of planning in much shorter term yes much yeah. much more short term even though it has not happened any of it um <laughs> i have enjoyed the the thrill of that and the freedom of that and that has put in perspective the kind of many years ahead planning of exactly what you're going to play in years ahead and uh, yeah if i lived in paradise hmm, i i would do it differently well i think it's one of the positive spins of the corona year as you called it uh or, you know the the covid period is that i think some orchestras when they go back are not going to suddenly come up with 18 months of concerts and schedules i think some people are going to tiptoe back in and they're still organizing things only a few months in advance which for in our terms in our world is is almost the next day you know a couple of months or a couple of weeks in advance is is nothing compared to the old days so maybe yeah. some people will embrace it for you um I suspect, <laughs> I suspect an awful lot will want to go back to the old days, but you know, who knows? Who knows? Well, it's also our approach to how we uh, announce concerts, I guess. Yes. That we that there is a that there is a danger in uh, in our our world becoming more and more limited to the um, to the much beloved uh, lollipops returning every season. Yeah. And unfortunately, the lollipops have a tendency to. Um, to become fewer and fewer. It is not likely to be an expanding uh, series of lollipops. Mm. It is narrowing down. And uh, I think 
the way we uh, announce concerts today, where we often mention one piece on the program uh, without the totality of the program, because after all, it is a piece of art if it's done well to yes. put the program together. Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, but, we, but we go out and say, this is a program, uh, Tchaikovsky 5. We lose a lot of quality by announcing it like that. And we lose, I think, also in the future, the sense that it it is so much more a program than, than that one piece in the program, yeah. however much we love it. Mm. And I would love that we, uh, again, if if in paradise, <laughs> I th I would love concerts where the programs were not announced. Yeah. Yeah. Where it was the thrill of a live concert, which was with those and those artists, which was enough. And out of that, something would, would surely happen. Yeah. Um, and it would take away the, for me, slightly unhealthy focus on those things I call the lollipops, however great they are, and however much I also want to have them in every in every season. Um, they, the way we go about them today, I find a little bit um, in the risk of being destructive for, for the future. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Yeah, I think I've dreamt of being a writer. I've dreamt of being an architect. I've dreamt of being a gardener. <laughs> and I would say right now I'm also trying something else because in this corona year, I have been wanting to do something meaningful with music, uh, though it has all been at a, at a distance. Mm. And um, I have missed the contact with the musicians, with the composers, with the soloists, with the audience. And I feel the group which is particularly let down, perhaps, are the children. Mm. And out of all this has come the idea that I make a YouTube channel. Mm. And in fact, it will air first time next Friday. And it will be very short episodes, about 10 minutes, on music I love, mostly classical also other things, and I will um, talk about it, what is, what I love about it, and I will combine it with drawings I make. I, I didn't realize my urge to, uh, to draw, but uh, it has come out naturally in this process. And it is at the end an encouragement for those who uh, watch them to share with me um, their artwork yeah. Yeah. and not uh, yeah, freely. It can be indeed any kind of artwork, but for each episode, there will be a kind of theme to it. So the first episodes are uh, there are several of those about Beethoven symphonies now, which we also spoke about earlier yeah. and say with the first symphony, one of the essences of that, I would say is improvisation. Mm. And uh, surprise. Think of the beginning. Yeah. It comes out of somebody loving to surprise his audience, somebody totally at ease with improvising. And thinking about those two things, yeah, we are improvising all the time. In our talk today, you might have sent me the questions, but I end up improvising my answers anyway. <laughs> um, the, the, every answer I give you, yeah. I probably been asked those things before yes but 
I'm improvising along. Like you are improvising how you respond to me then. Yeah. We are all masters in some way or another of improvising throughout our day with what we do. However much uh, schematic sense there is underneath, we are, we are indeed improvising. And with these things in mind, surprise and improvisation, would you like to share a piece of art? Do you, would you like to share uh, a drawing you've done, a dance you have caught on video, mm. or a photo you liked, or something else? And in that way, I would like this uh, channel to be a kind of interactive exchange yeah. uh, between people. And I guess I give this spark for it by uh, the through the music I present. Well, uh, fascinating and brilliant answer. And you're definitely the first person who's, you know, if I could distill it down to being a YouTuber as a change of profession, um, <laughs> then That's right. you're the first one. And it's a, br a brilliant answer. Um, uh, absolutely fascinating. What I will do is, uh, dear listener, if you look into the podcast notes below, you'll find the link to Thomas's YouTube channel. Um, and it's been there since May the 28th. Uh, I have no idea yet, Thomas, when this episode will come out. Uh, probably uh, in August or September, but I, I may well try and bump it up the list. I can't get it in for May the 28th, though. Um, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> but uh, but it'll be in the details below. And so anybody can go there and experience it. And I will be plugging it like mad on social media and on YouTube myself when it, when it goes live. So brilliant. Great. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? There's no doubt for me that um, um, though I'm not overly fascinated by food and I wouldn't spend much time with my last meal, hmm. what I would eat would be um, Japanese-inspired food. Yes. And uh, this I owe to the uh, tour I did with the Boston Symphony and Seiji Osawa in uh, Japan when I was assistant conductor with the orchestra. And I experienced another level of Japanese food than I had experienced in either Europe or, or in America. Mm. And what I loved about it and still love about it is the very gentle differences in taste. Again, it's, it's uh, in a way undemonstrative, however demonstrative it can look yes. and beautiful and exquisite um, and aesthetically very pleasing. It awakens your senses. Yeah. And makes you feel alive. And uh, I guess that is the essence of what I what I love about it. Yes, and I would have some sake with it. Uh, warm or cold? Uh, now, now I'm going to divide the audience. Warm. War, you're going to go warm? Okay. That's right. <laughs> I'm, I, like, I like cold sake. <laughs> but, you know, either way, I like sake. So there we go. <laughs> uh, wonderful, wonderful answer. And a wonderful chat. Really fascinating uh, to chat with you. Um, wonderful answers to the 10 questions and I hope in the near future we can sit down over a warm and cold sake maybe somewhere and carry on chatting another time thank you Thomas how about that Michael that would be wonderful great to see you again A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson Next time, I chat with a young English conductor who, after studying in Dublin and Vienna, went on to win the 2015 Aspen Conducting Prize. Since then, he's conducted in both the Opera House and on the concert stage all across Europe. But until then, bye-bye.